Welcome to Next Level Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Perry. For 25 years, I've helped professionals, first responders, celebrities, Olympians, teachers, moms, dads, and people just like you achieve their results better and faster than they thought possible. This is where measurable modern science meets the quantum. We're so glad you're here. Let's dive right in. Hey everybody, welcome to Next Level Healing. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Perry, and today I am blessed to be with Stephen Cope. He is the best-selling author of The Dharma in Difficult Times, Finding Your Calling in Times of Loss, Change, Struggle, and Doubt, The Great Work of Your Life, and Many Others. He is the Senior Scholar in Residence at the famed Kripalu Center in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, a facility that uh, takes over 50,000 people a year. It's um, really amazing how many people you accommodate there, Stephen. Um, welcome to Next Level Healing. Tara, it's so good to see you. Um, and um, thanks for the welcome. Yeah, for many people probably watching this will know Kripalu. It, it's the largest yoga center in America. And um, before COVID, we we regularly saw 50,000 people a year. After COVID, we've tried to, excuse me, we've tried to scale it down a little bit um, because we found that we could, first of all. Um, so we probably see more like 40,000 people a year now and 800 programs kind of spanning all the way from yoga and meditation in a fairly hardcore way to um, personal growth and health and so forth. That's phenomenal. That's a huge number. So what do you find? I mean, because you you've been on the healing path for or, or the spirit, the spiritual awakening path for many, many years. Can you can you give us a glimpse of what you were like as a young person and at what point this pathway presented itself as being something you really wanted to devote your life to? That's such a great question that hardly anybody ever asked. I as a kid, I was. So my mother was a poet, and she wrote a poem about her two sons. She has five kids, but two sons. And one was my brother, Randy, who was very athletic and a mechanic, and he was building his own go-kart in the garage. And I was more the poet, right? I, I, I was a gardener. I grew flowers. Even as a little kid, I was very interested in religion. So I grew up in a in a kind of mainstream Protestant family in Ohio. My dad was the dean of, of a small Presbyterian college there named the College of Worcester. And, um, but I was exposed because it was a campus chapel where we worshiped. I was exposed to really deep theology, fantastic music, um, you know, Bach and Handel and all of the great, uh, you know, sacred oratorios. And so as a kid, I was really drawn into spirituality. Who knows why, right? My brother wasn't, my other siblings weren't. We lived in Europe for a while and I was very drawn to the cathedrals. And, um, so I went through Amherst College and I got a degree in anthropology. Those were the days in which you aren't really that concerned about making a living. Amherst was very much a gentleman's college in the sense that it's a high-end elite school. I knew it was finishing school. Um, I went on to get um, 
a an advanced degree in um, social work and psychology. And I did that for about 10 years. And I, you know, I studied psychoanalytic psychotherapy and it was great for about 10 years. And then as I approached 40, I just felt like it wasn't enough. It wasn't doing it for me. So I took a year off and I was going to go to an Episcopal monastery. Uh, I was very, in graduate school, I joined the Episcopal church and I was very drawn to the beautiful liturgy and the music, everything that I'd grown up with. And so I had my name on the door of what they call a cell in the monastery. I was going to go there for a year. And then my buddy said, hey, Steve, those those monks all get overweight and they drink too much. And why don't you come to this place called Kripalu? Um, It's really healthy and it's beautiful. It's up on a mountain in the Berkshires. And hey, guys. Studies are showing that 68% of people that watch podcasts regularly don't click the subscribe button. Do me a huge favor. If you like this content, click subscribe so other people know where to go for the cool stuff. Thank you. So um, I had my name on the door of, of, of a monastery cell, which is what they call the room where you stay. And my buddy said, Steve, you know, did you notice that the monks get really overweight and they maybe drink a little too much? Why don't you come to this other form of monastic life called Kripalu for a weekend with me? So I, I came to Kripalu and it was fantastic. Beautiful, beautiful 250-acre estate in the Berkshires up on a mountain. A community of about 350 Really, I would say earnest and even zealous people really practicing the full path of yoga and meditation. What year was that that you went there? That was 1989. Wow. Yeah. And what I what I discovered was a community of really interesting, smart, dedicated practitioners. We had a guru, an Indian guru, legitimate kind of guru dude. I, I was never that much into the guru path, but I was into, at that stage of my life, I was into like Thoreau when he went to Walden. I was into, how can I live fully? What would be a full life for me? And I, I wanted to dive deeply. I didn't want to just, um, you know, drop down into a shallow path, but go deep in one path. So I went to Kripala. I took a year off from my psychotherapy practice in Boston. And, of course, I never went back. I, I fell in love with the Eastern contemplative traditions, both Buddhism and yoga. I found that the community was really interested in my skills in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And so we began to look carefully at the relationship between East and West. And um, it just fit hand in glove. So that was 35 years ago. I'm still there as the scholar emeritus now, as I've aged. Um, but it's, it's been a wonderful ride. And by the way, you look amazing. Um, oh, thank you. can you, can you speak to how, um, because I just got back from a Joe Dispenza event in Cancun and, um, it does seem that when we go deep into meditation, when we connect that heart and brain coherence, the health benefits are through the roof. Um, can you comment on that? Absolutely. So we, you know, one of the things I did in my 35 year tenure is found a, a, a research group researching the the really hard benefits of yoga and meditation. And we found that 
just in every way in the brain. I mean, the brain is, of course, absolutely essential, but anything connected with the vagus nerve, um, heart rate, uh, you know, breathing rate, brain chemistry. So um, all of those great brain chemicals that you want, GABA and serotonin and so forth. Um, I, I have a very deep meditation practice. So I've been practicing Vipassana meditation for 35 years, really. And, um, I'm in love with the, the effects, the cumulative effects, just like stress meditation has cumulative effects. And now I just, I dive so deeply. My mind gets so quiet and concentrated. And, you know, Tara, I I have a lot of younger friends in their 40s and 50s that I said, please, I beg you, learn to meditate. It will enhance your now and it will enhance your future in so many ways. Most of them don't learn to meditate. And why? Because it's hard, right? It, it's it's it, it takes real practice and a real effort, especially early on. And... You know, the, the Buddhists always say the fruition comes from the very beginning, but some of the bigger fruition does take a while before you can really let the mind get super quiet. Isn't there that great quote that you have in your book, uh, hard in the beginning, easy in the end? Right. Yeah. So <laughs> I love that. I forgot who said it, but uh, it was a Buddhist teacher. The idea that... Um, in the world of distracted living, where most of us live in our culture, uh, the world of um, sensory pleasure and all that stuff, none of which is wrong. But in that world, uh, it's it's easier at the beginning when you're young, and it's much harder at the end when you're old. Whereas in meditation, oh my God, the benefits, the the mental, emotional benefits that come with a long a lifelong meditation practice. It's just amazing. So I, I help people, you know, find what's stuck in their subconscious mind. And, and I see the health benefits that come from that, which are mind blowing. Would you tell us some of the stories? Because for 50,000, you know, people coming through a year, I imagine a lot of these people are coming in with pronounced uh, health challenges. And I'm guessing you hear story after story after story of people who have overcome various problems by connecting that heart and brain coherence, getting deep within themselves, allowing those knots of trauma to um, unwind. Can you speak to that and what you've seen over all these years at the most visited yoga center in America? Absolutely. It's just been fascinating to watch this, Tara. And of course, as a psychologist, I've been most interested in some of the psychological benefits. And one of the things that I see all the time is people arriving at Kripalu early in their life, maybe in their 30s or 40s, but having real um, characterological struggles, like really deep-seated psychological what we would call in the East defilements, right? Difficulties, afflictions, all built around grasping aversion and delusion. And, you know, in, in Western psychology, it's, it's only been recently that we've thought characterological stuff could really change significantly over a lifetime. 
And I see people coming in with like serious narcissistic um, disturbance, um, primitive narcissistic character disorders. And over time, partly through the immersion of their themselves into a community where they're surrounded by healthy people and they get a, a lot of feedback, a lot of mirroring, a lot of positive mirroring. Now, anybody with narcissistic wounds needs a lot of that. And I, I see over time how profoundly changed those early character problems can be. And, um, you know, the Buddhists saw that too. He, he, it's funny. He, you know, very often with, during the Buddha's lifetime, he would get a patient that we might call like a primitive narcissistic character. And he wouldn't have them meditate, right? He'd, he'd have them walk in the woods, quiet down, uh, develop uh, self-soothing techniques, and then meditation would come along later. So we do some of that same thing at Kripala, where the first thing is just a full-throated embrace. How do you create a container in which people feel authentically, safely held and soothed? And that's the beginning of reigniting development that's been blocked by trauma or um, difficult parental circumstances. But once you begin to reignite those developmental needs that are always there, but, but held in abeyance, people begin to, they begin to heal. Beautiful. See that all the time. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, gosh, so many things come to mind. Uh, you, uh, in your books, uh, especially the great work of your life, you look at the lives of many great people. Um, as Tony Robbins loves to say, success leaves clues and so does failure. So you do a great job of looking at the lives of many great people. And I know Gandhi is one of your favorites um, and the Dharma journey of, of all of these people. Um, can you start to unpack that for us? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I often get the, this comment, Tara, well, those are all famous people. I can't do any of that, right? But the truth is that every one of the characters that I portray in both of my books, where I take that approach, looking at great lives and ordinary lives, were inflicted, um, were, were conflicted and sometimes developmentally very deflected. Um, conflicted early in their lives. So Gandhi was a, was a mess. He was a scared little kid. He was terrified of everything. Um, you know, early on, his nurse, his nursemaid taught him to chant. And it was on that bridge of chanting that he began to cross over into his power and his character. Thoreau, same thing. I mean, Thoreau never published more than 800 books in his whole lifetime. He wasn't well-known. Uh, he wasn't famous. He was widely considered a loser. This is true of almost, yeah, in his hometown of Concord, he was considered a ne'er-do-well and a loser, right? His father, his father owned a pencil factory. He made pencils, but he was brilliant and um, determined, as, as I was as a young man, to live fully. So when he went to Walden Pond, he said, you know, I'm going to this uh, two and a half year retreat to dig deep 
into the marrow of life and not to find when I came to die that I had not lived. Mm. Um, so a lot of the people that I portray are people who, as a result of their own limitations, difficulties, failures, neuroses, had to um, come to grips with their lives in a, in a very deep way, often a very healing way. And then went on, the fruit of that was that they went on to live great dharmic lives, as say, Thoreau did. But, um, you know, all of the research now points to the fact that it's not in more genius that, that takes us to these high plateaus of, of a dharmic life. Rather, it's, it's effort, it's daily discipline, effort, what we call deliberate practice. Um, and so... I have to debunk this this myth that these people are geniuses and that's why they had a great life. That's why they had a dharmic life. No, rather they, they faced obstacles that we all face and they were a little more skillful maybe than we at navigating them, learning the lessons and then, um, and then receiving the fruit of, of living like a disciplined life of, of deliberate practice of effort. Um, so that's, that's the first thing I'd say. We've had this delicious um, series of, of people on the show. I had Chris Sneberg who wrote no mind, no problem, no, no self, no problem. And it does seem that getting out of the mind and, and getting into that delicious quiet space um, is where all the jewels are. You do a beautiful job in your book of writing um, Gandhi's, uh, experience when he found himself, you know, being in a position of great leadership and they were demanding action of him. And and can you describe what he did when uh, pushed with that, you know, need to lead a country and everybody turning to him for, hey, we need action, action, action. What did Gandhi do and, and why did it work so well for him? So when Gandhi returned to uh, his homeland of India, after 20 years in South Africa, remember, he'd become a social justice warrior in South Africa, all based on the teachings of, of the Bhagavad Gita. And so he had a reputation when he landed back in, in Bombay. Um, and the, uh, the beginnings of the rebellion against British Raj, you know, were, were already deeply rooted and they wanted this guy who had become such a warrior in South Africa to get to work on freeing the, the Indian culture from the British Raj. And at this point, he does something interesting. He takes a, a seven-month tour all around India on, in third-class train carriages. He says, I want to get to know Mother India again. And seven months, he went all around the country, huge country, and was devastated by what he saw. He was devastated by the poverty and by the submission to um, the, the colonial temperament, right? And so when he got back, he was pissed off. He was really angry. And again, Nehru and uh, others wanted him to get right to work in the field of social action. And he said, no, I'm going to go into retreat. Why? Because... I need to regain the balance of my mind. I need to let go of my rage and my anger about this, the current circumstances. And I need to connect with my inner guidance. 
Gandhi, this is fascinating, was, was uh, a man of deep prayer and meditation. And early on, he learned to tune in to his guidance, which he would, you know, he would say came from God. Um, and he said at one point, he said, the only tyrant I allow in my life is the still small voice within that tells me what to do. The only tyrant. Because he experienced, if, if he got this message from his higher power, from God, from Rama, um, he was going to act on it. He was going to obey it, no matter what the cost. And so he did go into retreat for about a year. He, he built an ashram that still exists today. He farmed. He spun cotton into, into thread. And slowly, he emerged from his depression and anger. He gained the balance of his mind. And he began to get guidance to, okay, now go back out into the world. Now you can become a leader now because you're leading from consciousness and not from reactivity and, and anger. And the British never understood Gandhi. They had a whole, they had a whole unit in their army dedicated to trying to understand him because, because he was guided by this intuition, by higher power, by God. Um, he would do very surprising things that, that didn't seem strategically intelligent, but he had a bigger vista on the whole thing. And so the, the British were totally confused. He didn't want to be their enemy. He wanted to be their friend. So he was, he was living with this big perspective and it completely befuddled the British who were, um, very much in their narrow view of, colonialism and and what success would look like there, especially people like Churchill. And the wonderful epiphany that came to him when he got super, super still and quiet. Uh, actually, before we get to the epiphany, which was a wonderful uh, takeaway uh, on, on, on being God guided, um, talk about the act of, because uh, he, you'd always see him spinning on that. He was, was always making his own clothes. And there was something about that act that was like a meditative act for him that included a lot of um, important uh, components. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. This is, this is the brilliance of Gandhi. So he realized that the, um, the British, as part of their relationship with, with their Indian servants, um, had gotten a monopoly on the sale of cloth, on the sale of many things. They were actually ripping the Indian culture off in the, on the sale of, of many things that they needed. So the Indians were buying cloth from Britain, all the big textile mills. And Gandhi said, no, look. We're going to start spinning our own cotton into our own thread, and we're going to start to make homespun garments. And I'm going to start by wearing only homespun garments. That's A. B, the process of spinning cotton into thread or wool into thread was itself a meditative practice. So meditative practice, the first practice in meditation is always concentration meditation allowing the mind to focus and center and become gathered. And one of the side effects of that is the mind becomes very one-pointed. And that's the beginning of real meditation. So Gandhi realized that the, the rhythmic movement of the spinning, the narrowing of concentration on the process of that art, 
actually help people who had no experience with meditation to experience the meditative mind and then to go more deeply into perhaps formal practices. But here you'd have the coming together of individual fulfillment and the common good. So we're making our own cloth. We're empowered. Um, this is this is us showing our agency. And we're fulfilling our own spiritual needs by learning to, to calm the mind and to focus the mind and gather the mind. So, um, I mean, simple. Brilliant. And the other um, huge... Um epiphany that he had when he went deep, deep, deep for so long was to realize that India was very rich in salt. That's right. And that uh, when 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 he made that big stand uh, uh, that was so famous, you know, with the people walking up to the salt mine and, and being clubbed down when the whole world saw how right. peaceful they were being. And they were basically just saying, look, our country is rich in salt and we want access to it. We don't want to have to buy it from the invaders. <laughs> It was. It he was. Won the, he won the hearts and minds of the world. That's right. Well, it was illegal. The British had made it illegal for Indians to make salt, and making salt is simply harvesting it from where it is and separating it from the mud and so forth. And he saw this as an outrage, just like the cloth issue. So you're you're stealing our own salt and selling it back to us. And this was brilliant because Nehru and the others realized that they, they had to come up with an act of civil disobedience, of resistance, that would capture the imagination of the world, and that would be nonviolent. And so in his deep meditation, when he's connecting with his own guidance, he, he comes up and he sits for months spinning, meditating, praying. What would the act of civil disobedience be? It would be the act of making salt. So he gathered together, he, he made this trek from his ashram to the sea, to this little sea village of Gandhi, and thousands of people gathered behind him, right? As he, as he walked, it started out with, I think, 400 and then 5,000, and it became an international event. So by the time he arrived at the sea to make salt, all the reporters were there from all over the world. And, of course, he coached his people in nonviolence. And so um, the the British Raj came in with their violent methods and struck them down on, on the heads and created concussions and leading and death. And the whole world saw it. The whole world saw this act of civil disobedience. Getting chills all over my body, just you telling this. And, and you know, it changed everything. That was the beginning of the end of the British Raj in India through a nonviolent protest like that. It was Gandhi's genius, right? You have all these beautiful quotes from many different sources about the need and the power of connecting to that deep, deep, quite, quite spiritual place. I love the Franz Kafka quote that you have in there. Uh, he says, do not even listen, simply wait be quiet, still, and solitary. The world will freely offer itself to you to be unmasked. It has no choice. It will roll in ecstasy at your feet. You love that. Kafka. Now, we, have, we identify Kafka with a different mindset, right? But there's Kafka saying, don't even leave your room. Just sit in your chair quietly, and eventually the world will roll at your feet. I, I love that quote, too. And, and of course... 
it's just it's just true. Um, and it, it's exactly what Gandhi was was teaching his people. When you see 50,000 people uh, or 40,000 people nationwide, worldwide coming to your facility at Kripalu to receive something, what do you what's the communication that you most often hear? What is it that they want? Uh, what are they suffering from? Yeah, that is such a simple question. The one thing I hear over and over again is I want to come home to my true self. Mm-hmm. I want there's this sense of being alienated from the deepest part of our wisdom and what we call the self and a sense of almost being an orphan like I'm 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 alone, I'm isolated. I know that I'm missing something in life. I I know that I, there's this hunger for full living that shows itself every day at Kripalu. I want to move to my true self. What is that? And of course, in the Eastern traditions, there is this idea of the true self, the authentic self. Um, It's not the ego. It's not what we think of as the ego. It's deeper than that deeper mind. Doesn't the ego actually even get in the way? It's the identification with the ego self that... I mean, that's where all the problem is. That's that's not the true self. The true self is the expansive. Um, we're interviewing Jill Bolte-Taylor coming up in February, and she had a stroke and lost the whole left hemisphere of her brain. And guess what we are without the left hemisphere of our brain? We're, yeah. we're at bliss. We're at peace. We don't know where our, where our bodies stop and the rest of the world starts. And that's available to us all the time. But we have to get that thinking brain out of the way, right? That. I mean, look, the, the Eastern contemplative traditions nailed this going all the way back to the middle part of the first millennium BCE. Yoga, Buddhism, Jainism, they all discovered the same three roots of what we might call ego or what they call affliction or torment. Those are grasping, that is craving, clinging, holding on. I want, I need my big career, my big book. Right. Aversion, hatred. Um, there are many different forms of aversion, hatred, procrastination, anger, and so forth. Um, and delusion, that is blindness. Those are the things that characterize our culture, our, our world. And so what we got from these traditions were, were very simple, systematic practices to begin to unmask the extent to which we're driven by grasping aversion and delusion. And to begin to mitigate the power of those um, primitive drives, right? So the the you know the the paradox of the human being. We have these drives. Um, we have these three parts of our brain and the limbic system is much more driven by grasping aversion and delusion, the prefrontal cortex you know, is allows us perspective and planning and um, surrender and so forth. Uh, So I fell in love with the contemplative traditions because the practices were so simple and and conformed with their theology. So I, I told you I had my name on the door of a Christian monastery. I found it both in in um, 
theology school. I went to Episcopal Divinity School. I was going to be a priest there and also in the monastery. Um, there was a lot of theology up in the head, right? Up in the head. How many angels dance on the head of a pen? But there was very little, how do I be present right now? Mm. Body with the experience of being human. How do I be present? Mm. With the experience of grasping and aversion and anger and delusion. And it's only in being present with it that you actually begin to see through it and and mitigate it. Can you tell us about how, because I also uh, understand that your um, residence there, your your center the, at Kripalu, um, is closely mirrored to Gandhi's uh, facility. So there's, there's clear commonality in the thinking um, about how to get that connection to our authentic self. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So Gandhi... Throughout his life, wherever he lived, both in, both in South Africa and in India, established ashrams, which are um, which are spiritual houses of study and practice. And when I moved into Kripalu in 1989, it was a, a real ashram. So, um, you know, I, I I I have a quote in one of my books: "A spiritual life is a disciplined life." And it is because we're constantly working, we're, we're trying to work skillfully with this experience of being human and grasping aversion and delusion and all of that that, that pushes us toward greed, hatred, and so forth. Um, and so within the safe space of a, of a community, you can begin to meditate, you can begin to do your yoga practice, begin to experience in the body, as the Buddha said, the direct experience in the body of craving, for example. But is that, well, as, as your mind becomes more refined, you begin to feel what's craving like in the body. It's very uncomfortable. It's full of suffering. I want, I want that. It takes us out of the moment. I'm grasping for that. Where's my chocolate? Right. Um, not that there's anything wrong with chocolate. I'm not talking <laughs> Um, so the, the contemplative traditions discovered this whole realm of practices and, and Gandhi was teaching those in his ashram, the same practices that we were teaching and are teaching at Prapalu, the ancient system of classical yoga, which was really a meditation system to begin with. The yoga postures didn't come along until medieval India. So the early, all of the early treatises on on yoga or meditation treatises going back all the way to 800 BCE. And then in the, in the Middle Ages, the yogis who had really begun to refine their practice realized that you could have these direct interventions into the body through the doing of yoga practices, of, of pranayama, breathing exercises, postures, and so forth. And all of this was a, just like Say Vessel van der Kolk has discovered like direct intervention into the body that um, cuts off some of the roots of grasping aversion and delusion in the brain and in the nervous system. Um, and so then the, the postures were added to the, um, the techniques of yoga. And of course, that's the first thing that came over to the West from, from India and from uh, Southeast Asia were the the physical practices 
And I think because we're such a we're such a practical culture, um, these really appealed and and are still appealing. I mean, the the numbers of people now that do yoga, it just keeps skyrocketing every year. I don't, I'm not sure. And yoga means union, does it not? Yoga means the word it's yoga. That union with source, is it not? It is. It's it's the yoga literally means to yoke, and that means to that means to come into union with the highest, most subtle parts of the mind and the nervous system, um, and um, you know, and the view that the mind is not in the body; the body is in the mind. And as you begin to connect with, by the way. In, in the East, mind and body are considered the same thing. The, the body is simply the gross mind. The mind is the subtle body. So you, you begin to connect with and identify with increasingly subtle aspects of the, the genius that's there in, in all of us. Um, and these ashrams and these places like Propalo are places where you can do that kind of work in depth. It's kind of like going to the hospital and getting an operation. You you can cut the defilements in depth and then go back out into the world, as Gandhi did, and act with skillfulness rather than act driven by greed and anger and hatred and so forth. So when somebody comes there, what are the options for them to spend time there? I mean, do you have like a, a half-day option and a three-day option and a one-month uh, option? <laughs> you can come for the morning. Or you can come for a month. Wow. Um, and so we have, as I said, I, I'm not sure now. We used to have 800 programs a year. Probably it's still about that. But you can come to Kripalu for a week or a month. Or I have a friend who's been there for months. And participate in our daily schedule of uh, yoga, of meditation, of body work, of really beautiful, very clean diet. You know, you don't even have to be doing the practices. Just coming into that quiet safe space um, actually allows people to settle down inside and begin to connect with this, this sense of oh, coming home, coming home to myself. And I'm feeling like I I have kind of everything I need here. I just haven't been connecting with it or using it. How often do you find people, uh, for example, we just had Karen Johnson on the show who wrote a book on grieving after her son overdosed uh, on a um, heroin. Uh, and she went from she went from being a federal judge, yeah. you know, highest job in the land to being a shaman because, you know, she realized that that wasn't fulfilling her anymore. I imagine you have a lot of people that once they start to connect with their dharmic path are challenged with the work that they currently have and their lives change as a result of it. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. So this whole idea of that every one of us is born with a dharma or a calling um, or, a, or a sacred duty. And in the yoga tradition, all of life is about identifying that and doing it in the world. So in my first book on Dharma, I described the, the four pillars of Dharma practice. The first is discerning your Dharma. The second is 
once you discern what it is, you, you do it full out with passion, with everything you've got. And then the third is you let go of the fruit, let go of the outcome. This is so counterintuitive, and this is the hard one for most Westerners to get. The other day, I met with a group of hedge fund guys. Well, we can't let go of the outcome. What are you crazy? <laughs> um, but in my book, you'll see how that actually can be done, and then turning the whole thing over to God. So people know that they have a calling, and when so I thought, tell, us, tell us what Dharma actually is uh, for the listeners that don't know and yeah. why it's so important. Okay. So this whole idea of Dharma is based on an ancient, ancient Indian myth called Indra's, Indra's Web. Indra was one of the great gods of the Vedic pantheon back in the, um, in the like first uh, millennium BCE or, or before. And it was said that Indra had cast a vast net over the entire universe. And at the warp and woof strain, the, the vertex of each warp and woof strain, there's a gem. That gem is an individual soul. And it's that soul's job to hold together that part of the web. If you don't hold together your part of the web, the whole thing starts to unravel. So this brings in the notion early on into the Indian culture that individual fulfillment, my being everything I can be, and the common good are woven together. If my individual fulfillment comes through stamp collecting, then I do that with everything I've got and, and guaranteed as I do it with all my passion, that will emerge as some kind of effect in the world for the common good. So the notion that the individual fulfillment and the common good have to arise together is at the very heart of this idea of Dharma. Mm -hmm. So beautiful. Yeah. The word Dharma itself is based on the Sanskrit root DHR, which means to hold together. So, you know, I don't have a big life. I sit here in my office and I write books and occasionally I talk to friends like you. What's my dharma? I have a gift that I developed in, in writing and, and in teaching. I'm no huge deal. My books do pretty well. They're out there. But my dharma is to use my idiosyncratic gifts and skills to serve my own being everything I can be, and at the same time, serving the common good. That's my little corner of the world. And... With um, honoring both of those sides come enormous fulfillment. Mm. Tara, when I finished this this last book, The Dharma in Difficult Times, th this book kicked my ass, by the way. This was a hard <laughs> Took me four years. Oh, my goodness. But when I finished it, I was high for six months. Wow. Because it drew out of me everything I have. Because you probably know now, if you're going to write a book these days, you have to submerse your ideas in stories that are really sticky, that people can get, and are, that are very mainstreamable. People, a lot of people don't even read anymore. So as a writer, the challenge is to tell stories in a way that people really identify with and get. And that's that's a, a real skill that you have to learn. So um, this book kicked my butt. 
when it was done, I felt like I have done my dharma. I did my duty to this book. I pulled this book down out of the oosphere, and I made it happen. And the sense of fulfillment is way beyond happiness. I, I have this whole distinction between happiness and fulfillment. Happiness is a mind state. Fulfillment is something that even goes deeper into our ardency and our passion. I've heard that happy, uh, that happiness is sort of an external fulfillment thing, which is dependent on the outside world, whereas this joy that you're talking about, this this uh, fulfillment is is an internal thing. Once once you've done your dharma, like you've described, you you're just in that state, and and really nobody can take it away from you. Nobody can take it away, and you know, happiness comes and goes. Some days I'm happy sitting here at my computer, and some days I'm not. But always at this deeper level, there's this sense of fulfillment. Like I'm, um, in order to make a, a dharma contribution, you have to get out of yourself. You have to crack open the shell of ego and allow yourself to be the do not the doer, but the channel for the bigger doer, right? Which is why we're, you know, we're so trapped in our egos in this culture. And I have so many friends who write books and quite honestly, they, some of them are deluded in thinking that a book is driven by how much you market it. That's not true, by the way. I hardly market my books at all. If you write a real book, like there's a real piece of Dharma work, mm. it has its own life. Mm. It has its own life force. And so my friends who think you put all your life force into the marketing, that's just not right. Mm. You put all your life force into the book, right? Well, Ralph Waldo Emerson taught Thoreau this. He said, when you're writing, every sentence should be its own evidence. That is, every sentence should have its own power and be its own evidence. You don't have to rely on tons of fancy scientific data. Every sentence is its own evidence. So um, that's Dharma. That's Dharma. You have something very inspiring in about your book, because um, uh, a lot of people would say, as you said earlier in the program, uh, you know, who am I? Uh, I'm not special. I'm not Gandhi. I'm not Beethoven. I'm not, you know, any of these amazing people that have all this direct connection to God. But you have this amazing, inspiring portion of your book where you're talking about how rare a human life is. Oh, and, and there was a, uh, there's a thing about the turtle at the bottom of the ocean. Oh, and I, could, could you tell us, tell us, speak to that, how rare a human life is? Well, of course, you know, the Buddha was his vast perception of the reality of human birth and animal birth and so forth, saw that um, and, and believed, and you don't have to believe this, but in the Eastern contemplative traditions, it's widely believed that we have multiple births and multiple lives. And the Buddha himself was known to have, in the lives leading up to his awakening, have systematically practiced all of the ten parmis of the ten perfections that allowed him finally to become a Buddha. Um, the Buddha saw that um, a human life is incredibly precious because there are, the Buddha saw that there are uh, zones of, of what he called the heaven realms, where 
Um, people live at a, in a much higher degree or level of consciousness than we do. And there are also the hell realms and, and there's some animal realms and we're, you know, we're beings live at a less conscious stage. But he believes that a human birth has just the right balance of difficulty and challenge and possibility so that this is the best place to become fully enlightened, this, this human birth. I, I, he said at one point that a human birth is so auspicious. It's like this. There's a tube floating on top of the ocean, one of the vast oceans of the earth. A turtle surfaces through the ocean and coincidentally, his head pokes right through that tube, that inner tube. What are the odds? Those are the odds of a human birth, right? So we take a human birth very seriously. This is an opportunity. This is why I love Thoreau, right? Because he got that. He's like, I, I want to live what it is to be human in every single way. Um, and the Buddhist basically said the same thing. The preciousness of a human birth uh, must be capitalized on, must be used, must be appreciated. Um, and then you begin to practice, as he said, like your hair is on fire because now I'm old now, I'm 74. And I will tell you that there are possibilities that arise in old age. They're absolutely fantastic. The mind itself does begin to get more subtle, more skilled, have bigger perspective. You know, think of Robert Frost, who my profile is his, his last book of Poems was called A Further Range. I love that because he was seeing with such big perspective, further range. You visualize a mountain range there in the distance that you can just barely see, but you can begin to apprehend it. So when you get old, a number of things happen. First of all, I'm, I'm much less attached to things, the world, money, Okay, I did okay. It didn't do great. It doesn't matter anymore, right? I'm much less attached to how are my books selling today. Um, and I'm much more motivated by how I can bring everything I've got to the opportunities of the moment. Where are the doors opening for me, right? I just put in a proposal for a new book, and it was re rejected by my publisher. First time that's ever happened. Okay. Door closed. That's not the door I want to go through. What doors are opening? And you begin to get much more interested in, in you know, kind of the wisdom of the data chain flowing with, with those open doors and with, with the possibility and deeply aware of how limited it is. Oh, the time's limited. Mm. Lifespan of a guy like me, a white dude who's 74. I got two more years to live. Oh, geez. <laughs> I, th I think you're going to be around longer than that. I, I think your lifestyle and your attitude has something to do with it. Uh, we'll see. I hope so. But anyway, I really do find myself living a day at a time now. And we give lip service to that. But in my new, at this age, I do find myself savoring every day. Now, Emerson said, only the days are God's. And it took me a long time to understand that. Only the days are God's. Days full 
a possibility, right? Um, so, yeah. It's funny how wisdom teachings, uh, you can hear them and it can take you decades to wrap your brain around them. I mean, yeah. I mean, Thoreau is my guy. I love Emerson too. But that one, only the days are God's. I, I get that now. That's a beautiful quote. That's so wonderful. Well, I am so grateful you've come on the show to to share your life experience and um, what's going on there at the famed Kropalo Center and all the people who are visiting and being able to connect more deeply to who they really are. Um, is there anything else that you'd like um, our listeners to know uh, in closing? Oh, um, I would say take seriously this precious life. And dive deep into the genius that is you. So we're all, we all have idiosyncratic geniuses. Figure out what it is and then do it. And it'll probably require a couple of leaps of faith. But I've taken a lot of those and every single one I landed on my feet. I mean, you think you're jumping off a cliff, but it's actually only a curve. So, you know. And isn't the suffering actually a gift? Because a lot of people I imagine come to you as as I've seen over and over again with challenges that they thought were going to break them, kill them. Um, and then because of the suffering, they came to you and and took steps to change their life and found that it, the, the suffering was actually the best thing that ever happened to them because it was their soul trying to get out. Exactly right. I mean, that's why my new book, The Dharma and Difficult Times, is all about what I call the disorienting dilemma. That's when life confronts you with an experience that doesn't fit into your 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 well-constructed concept. For example, life is unfair. People die. Everything changes, including me, including this body. When you get confronted with loss and change and and all of that, it forces you to re-examine and to widen your understanding of how does this whole thing work anyway? And then with that wider perspective, you can navigate life much more happily and skillfully. It's like Einstein said, either everything's a miracle or nothing is. And isn't right. it a whole lot more fun to live in the world of everything totally. being a miracle? Totally. <laughs> you know, I love Théard de Chardin, the great um, French paleontologist, Jesuit talks a lot about how, you know, life is lit up from within. Your your listeners should read a little bit of Teilhard de Chardin. I have not heard of that author. Yeah, he, he's a, a French Jesuit paleontologist uh, who is a, a mystic, was also a, a Jesuit in the Catholic Church, but an amazing mystic who saw the life, the, the world lit up from within. Hey. As you get older, you begin to you begin to see that. Isn't that glorious? Yeah, it's fabulous. And and never take anything for granted because well, I've been doing a lot with near death experiences, and there's so much to learn there because the richness that people experience when their brain is shut down uh, is beyond comprehension. So we have to ask ourselves the question: What else is there that I'm missing? And the answer is so much. <laughs> so much. Don't miss it. That's yeah. all. <laughs> so where do people go is on your social media? Um, how do people find you? Yeah, I'm easy to find my website, uh, www.stephencope.com. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Uh, I'm all over Amazon. I do have 
Facebook and Instagram. Um, just, I would say just Google me. Stephen yeah. And you'll find it. You'll find it all. And YouTube recordings, I'm guessing you're, you got lots of YouTube, of YouTube recordings. Yeah. Um, and more just about ready to, to, to post. And if people want to have sort of an ongoing uh, thing with you, uh, do you have a podcast or do people come to Grapalo? What's the best thing for people to do? No, just write me on my contact page. I'm very accessible. Just give me a shout. Um, go to my website, go to my contact page and send me an email. Thank you so much, Stephen Cobb, for being here with us on Next Level Healing. Folks, if you loved the show and got value of it, please click subscribe. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you on the next episode of Next Level Healing. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Next Level Healing. Please like, subscribe, and let us know how this helped you. How can it be even more life-changing? We love hearing from you. And if you're eager to upgrade your life, click the button here or go to consultterra.com and get your free customized GPS map. Get the coordinates for where you are now and where you want to go. Clients consistently report it's faster and easier than they thought possible. Remember, you were meant for more and it is available to you. See you right here next week for our next episode.